This is a special episode of Vestiges of Violence, where I sit down with Hawasha Finuhum, the head of Migration and Displacement Desk at Humanango, and Zubaida Baba Ibrahim, who heads the Humanitarian and Development Desk at Humanango. Today, we discuss the podcast, its reporting, impact, reach, and recent developments with respect to violence victims in the Northeast. This is Vestiges of Violence, a weekly podcast about personal stories of violence victims. For Human Angle, I am Hamida. So Hawa, I think I'm going to start with you today. Um, you've been in the heat of the conflict, you've visited um, IDPs and you've um, interacted with them much more than anyone here. Um, and I think you are in the best position to tell us what the experience was and um, how it made you feel coming back from that reporting trip and, you know, having to write the stories. Hi, Hamida. Thank you for having me on the podcast today. Um, I'm just going to talk about my very first reporting trip for Himanango, which was to Maiduguri in, I think, November last year. It was my very first contact with internally displaced persons in the Northeast. Before then, I had been working with displaced persons in the North Central, but not in as much detail as I did when I went to Maiduguri. And I remember being so completely shocked at the level of devastation that the insurgency had had on ordinary lives. Um, it's different when you read about it on social media or in the news, but when you're sitting there with actual people whose lives have been sometimes irrevocably changed by the insurgency, it's a different ballgame entirely. And so what that particular trip really did for me was to strengthen my conviction and passion to report these issues as best as I can with as much detail as I can just so that we make sure that um, people do not or people are not able to desensitize themselves from these stories no matter how difficult they are. Thank you so much, Hawa, for that. I mean, I, I can completely understand how that feels because, you know, when I get to voice the episodes and, you know, the um, scripts that you bring back or the scripts that you send down, it's I keep wondering, I mean, how, how is it for you when you talk to these people, you know, face to face and you, you get to listen to their emotions, you get to hear them, you know, talk about and relieve these experiences and then you are there with them, you know, relieving it too. So it's, it's a lot and um, I must commend you for, you know, the work that you do. It's not, it hasn't been easy. Um, Zubaida, you've been able to you know go to Adamawa and touch a region that we haven't you know um in a while and then you've also been able to visit these camps and I just want to know like how was the experience for you what what do you what what did you take home you know what was different what was a shock um shocker and what was a game changer for you okay hey Hamida and thank you for having me today and yeah, um, it was my first time. Actually, it's not my first time um, seeing IDPs in Adama because before I worked with Human Angle, yeah, NYSC and stuff. But then hearing their stories is a different ball game 
altogether because now it's not just a group of people where you just mention them as IDPs. You get to see that they have their own identities, they have their own lives, and they had um, things going on for them before the insurgency. So yeah, um, I visited um, Mokohi camp and one in Fofori. And there are, I think, about 21 camps in Adamawa, which majority of them are in Jamaica. And yeah, in Adama, the IDPs there have this sense of resilience and it's so, it's so, mm. I don't know how to even describe it. Like yeah. for people that went through that and then they're living in these camps where the conditions are harsh and they do not have access to water mm. and then there's hunger. And then when they saw me and I asked for people who were displaced from Madagadidi and Michika and um, places that the insurgency was really bad in Adamawa they they were like people don't really ask for their stories and it was just so amazing that I spoke to them and then they told me their stories uh, which I hold very dear to my heart mm. yeah yeah absolutely interesting um I, I really connected with what you said about um the people who have whose stories have not really been asked for before mm -hmm. because oftentimes when we have these conversations on the broader stage conversations about the insurgency and all of that people seem to think that Borno state is the worst hit perhaps it is but it does not mean that other parts of the region like Adamawa have not also had their fair share mm -hmm. of the insurgency so I, I, I wanted to ask, do you think that they face a peculiar set of challenges from people in places like Borno, especially when it comes to access to relief materials? I was listening to a podcast the other day where someone said that, um, no, it was actually a Twitter space by MSF. And what they were saying was that a lot of relief gets to people in the Northeast, but it doesn't really, not as much relief gets to people in the Northwest because um, the insurgency and all of that is focused on the Northeast. But another interesting um, factor is the fact that even in the Northeast, it's really mostly just Borno. It's not like the entire region. So I wonder, do you think that people displaced persons in Adamawa have as much access to relief materials and support like people in say Borno? Um, not really mm. actually because um, when I ask them about people who usually donate to them they only talk about the state emergency management yeah. agencies that is the Adamawa SEMA mm. so um, and then when it came to the clinics I think they only mentioned that it was UNICEF that was um, supporting the clinics but wow. when UNICEF withdrew the, the clinics were closed and then we have organizations like the ICRC in Borno and then we have like the MSF yeah. in Borno too like um, you even have the IOM there and all of that especially in Borno so you have these organizations that are setting up treatment centers in Borno mm. and then in Adama they just um, rely on the primary healthcare centers that are close to them and then also while I was in the camp I noticed there was one woman that was in labor and they had to like pick her up wow. to take her to the primary healthcare center that is like two kilometers wow. away. And these people do not have vehicles. Mm. They, don't, they don't even have wheelbarrow to push her. So mm. it was just, they were just holding them and yeah. Wow. Is there anything else? That sounds, that sounds difficult. Sorry. 
very i can't even imagine being mm-hmm. you know in labor yeah. and having to you know go through that um how you've been um in contact you've spoken to and interacted with the nifa women a support group of women championing for their survival and freedom of their husbands you know falsely accused of being part of the boko haram terror group i just wanted to know um can you tell us how their um, stories, can you tell us how their stories have progressed, you know? What is the um, recent development and um, where are their husbands now? I really love that you ask this question because my current report is basically trying to answer that question. The current report that I'm writing right now, it's basically trying to trace the journey of one particular woman from when she was in Komshi to when she was displaced and then, you know, had to go to the displaced persons camp in Bama and then to my degree and finally to being resettled. So um, the story of the Nifa women first and foremost is a story of resilience, but it's also important to highlight that that resilience would not have been needed if they had not had to suffer the kind of injustice that they had to suffer. Yeah, so most times when we talk about um, the resilience of people, I'm always quick to point out that they would not have to exemplify that level of you know resilience and power if they had not been um, if they had not been subjugated and had to go through all of those things. So these are women whose husbands have been detained, some for up to seven years. And so you find that there are a lot of children in IDP camps in Maiduguri and Bama who have never seen their fathers before. Yes, because most of them, um, their fathers went missing or were detained when their mothers were pregnant with them. I remember speaking with a particular family and the man said that at the time that he was detained, his wife was like two months pregnant or so and he was finally released last year and so his child was like six years old at the time wow. yes and his child saw him and his mother was like this is your father and the child was running away from him imagine your child who were running away, away from, from you right so like for the first week you know the child did not really recognize him as his father it took it took time it took a while for him to begin to accept that okay this is my father so this is just one of the very basic but really big ways that the um, members of the nifra women have been impacted by the um by the deten- detention of their husbands and family members there there's also the fact that um you know, they had to like mobilize themselves from this group and then begin to demand for justice and just ask for their husbands to be released. So the question is, how successful were they? They were to a certain extent because um, from last year to now, over a thousand of these men were finally cleared of the allegations and, you know, um, exactly, exactly. So the, the, the Nigerian military actually admitted that these are not people who have any connection at all with the Boko Haram insurgency. Right, right. So, and then you begin to ask questions around compensation. Were these people compensated after they were absorbed of guilt? The answer is no. They were given like 10,000 naira or 7,000 naira to transport themselves back home. And now that, you know, some of their husbands are uh, coming back, you find that the Bernou state government is now resettling displaced persons back to communities in places like Ungurusoe, places like Bama. These are places that don't even have adequate health facilities. There are children who have been dying from from diseases that are as basic as malaria just because they don't have access to health facilities. There are no schools, there are no um, access to water. And so all these places like Kumshe, like um, like uh, Boboshe, 
these places are still mostly deserted because we have not been able to find a way to secure these places so that IDPs can go back to their original homelands. So Howard, that's really interesting. But I was wondering, while these women's husbands were detained, mm. how was life for them? Mm. That, again, is a very important question. It was really, really difficult, as as we can all imagine, because a lot of households in the north are heavily patriarchal, right? So oftentimes they have men who are like the heads of the household. So what happens when the man who is the head of the household is no longer there? So you'd find that a lot of these women started even getting discriminated upon, even when they were in the IDP camps. So relief materials would come. And the camp officials would be sharing them, but they would sideline women whose husbands were not around. So they would prioritize women who had their husbands over women whose husbands were either dead or in detention or even in captivity. So it was, you know, double for them. And so they had to find ways to sustain themselves, such as by knitting caps, by going through the to the famous aloe dam to get firewood to sell. But even that was unsafe because a lot of these women reported that they ran into insurgents in those places. Sometimes they whip them. Sometimes they, they, they even abduct them. And then sometimes oh. they just warn them not to ever come back. And also because a lot of these women are stationed at the Dalori camp, which is like at the outskirts of Maiduguri, it means that the access that they have to means of life is heavily limited so the only things they can do is try to get firewood or knit caps but even the knitting of caps takes weeks mm-hmm. and then they have to sell it for like 5,000 naira. so how can they sustain on that amount of money before they are able to make another cap and then sell it mm-hmm. yeah so really these are the issues around it mm-hmm. um Zubaida, I don't think we talk enough about, you know, the uh, mental impact it has, you know, telling these stories. Um, you host um, Berbishin Rikichi, where um, we translate vestiges of violence into Hausa for those who do not understand English. And I just wanted to know, how has it been, you know, having to go through these stories and, you know, voice and host it, you know, every single week? How has it been for you? How has it impacted you, you know, not just mentally but in the way you um, relate with people because um, sometimes the um, effects that these stories have on us they go beyond our you know inner mental health it's it affects the way we treat people and the True. way we view life so just tell me I, I would like to really know how that has impacted you okay yeah um, it has impacted me I'm not going to lie because sometimes yeah. when I am um, translating them into Hausa there's this way that other languages just captures the essence of something definitely so yes and then also I have to be really careful with language because when you're translating something like um, sex for food Mm. it could be karuenchi and that means um, willingly giving yourself out but that's not the case but that's not the case Mm. because these people do not even though they don't know that they didn't give consent but they are being coerced they are being persuaded to do these things for food and to survive so yes that is the impact and then um, also sometimes when I translate these things and I'm narrating them and I just realize that I'm a human being like them and the only difference between me and them are just some few circumstances Mm. if not I would be in their shoes Mm. but then that's the impact on me and I think it's not as important as the impact that the 
Hausa podcast is making, okay. especially in West Africa where the predominant language is Hausa. Yeah. So there's more reach. And mm. these people that were telling their stories get to hear their stories and they get to know that, yes, they matter to they us matter. and they matter to the society at large. You mentioned, you know, them knowing that their stories matter. And I just even wanted to circle back to some of the episodes that we've done mm -hmm. that has gotten, you know, um, an outreach and intervention by, you know, um, anonymous individuals and um, some organizations where you have um, Bana in our episode 23 who was disabled by the military and his family you know their dreams um, their dreams had to be on hold just to take care of him because right. um, his mental health was grossly affected yeah. so um, at least there has been a bit of progress in the case of Bana you know in our episode 23 who was disabled by the military and his family dreams had to be on hold you know just to cater for him because his mental health was grossly affected um, donations have been made towards you know getting him into um, a mental health facility mm -hmm. to see how how they can work on um, his mental health and also helping the family to um, pursue their dreams not just having to stay at home and take care of one child but for um, his sister to be able to go back to school you know and achieve her dreams and for his mother to be able to work you know and end for the family we also have Adam Modo, who we discussed in episode 42, um, who is living with an infectious souvenir, you know, from a detention facility in Meiduguri. Um, donations were made and um, he has gotten the help that he needs and also um, he has made progress, you know, in getting better. So um, I just also wanted to ask if you've you know you've had people reach out to you telling you that all oh, these stories that you tell they matter because i know sometimes when you tell these stories it's it gives you a sense of um importance or it's re it restates you know the important work that you do so do you have people reach out to you do you have situations like that because um i've had you know friends um and you know random people not just in nigeria from the u.s from canada reach out to me to tell me that oh this work we do you know vestiges of violence is really giving life to these victims you know they are nigerians in this country in these countries and they don't even know that this type of atrocities occur here and you've even had um, donations from these countries come in for um idp women um in borno and also in the sea and the idp camp in benue so um how has it been for you you know getting that feedback from people oh yeah the feedback has been massive actually because at first when we launched like i think the first two episodes people thought that it wasn't real and then I had to tell them that, oh, these are actually Real. people in the Northeast that were displaced, that mm. the insurgency affected. So, yes, now I get a lot of feedback. Okay, Hawa, so it's been stated earlier in this episode that you travel to these areas, you know. And I would just like to know what is the situation now from your last trip, you know. What, what is different? What um, can you say has been a development and what can you say has regressed? Okay, uh, my last trip was like two months ago and things have, so much has changed from that time to now. For example, a lot of the women from the Daloritu camp have been, or a lot of the people, not just women, have been um, resettled to places like Ungurusoe. 
And so the Dalori camp right now is mostly empty. This is a camp that used to house over 10,000 people. Yeah, so now they've all been resettled. And it would have been good news except that they are not being resettled back to their homelands because, because those places are no longer as, as safe as they used to be before the insurgency. So what you have now is people who are in areas that are not really theirs and who are struggling to settle them because there are no schools for their children, there is no food, and then there's a rape epidemic going on right now. Yeah, from the reports that we're getting from the women, there's been lots of rape cases, girls getting raped whenever they go in search of firewood, sometimes even when they're sleeping. And these aren't by, you know, Boko Haram members. These are normal, you know, citizens. Exactly, exactly. These are by, like, sometimes officials or even fellow displaced persons. Yeah, so it's, it's a whole epidemic on its own. And then there's also the fact that um, because they don't have a lot of... Um, a lot of money at their disposals they are unable to say invest in maybe farmlands or trade or all of that so it just seems as though it is a second round of displacements and not really the resettlements that people think it is i mean that's that's really sad you know thinking that when you see it on the news that um these idps are being resettled but in the real sense of it's being on the ground paints um a clearer picture of what that resettlement means for the IDPs. Thank you so much, Hawa and Zubeda, for joining me on this episode. I must say you've done amazing work so far, which spotlights what Human Angle is all about, and especially with support from our partners, such as the African Transitional Justice Legacy Fund, the Open Society Initiative West Africa, the MacArthur Foundation, amongst others. It's been an amazing journey so far and I cannot wait for us to do more work and tell more stories of these victims. So thank you again for honoring my, you know, invitation and coming on the podcast. Thank you, Hamida, for having me. Thank you so much, guys. This is an episode of Vestiges of Violence. It was produced by Atahi Rujibrin. The senior producer is Anthony Asamota. The executive producer is Ahmed Selkida. For more stories... Go to humananglemedia.com and find more episodes wherever you listen to great podcasts. I am Hamida.